We are downtown. We are historic. We are family. We are scriptural. We are First Baptist Church. The Spirit has already been at work this morning, I believe, shaping us through the scripture and the music. And that was just outstanding, y'all. Thank you so much for that. Ready to read some scripture this morning together? Let's stand up. Let's stand up and read. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God indeed. <clears throat> okay, here's a question for you. Who did God make when God made you? Don't, don't be tempted. Well, I can't tell you whether to be tempted or not, but don't, don't laugh at that question, really. It's, it's, it's a serious question. Self-deprecating jokes are funny because we can all relate to those voices echoing in our heads that say, you really are a failure. You really don't have what it takes to make it. Not a one of us has not heard a voice like that. And sometimes not even our religion counters those voices. I, in my formative years, heard a whole lot of preachers declaring what low-down worms we all are. You're a worm until you get saved, but then, but then, you are a saved worm. <laughs> a heaven-bound worm is that true, though? Is that true? Not only is it not true, it's actually a distraction from the seriousness of the moral condition without Christ's intervention. Nobody expects anything from a worm. And you didn't think you were going to get anything from this sermon today. Nobody expects anything from a worm. Nobody expects ethical accountability from a being incapable of contemplating and deliberating a moral choice. But God expects that of us. Why? Because he didn't make a worm when he made you. And by the way, to use the word worm to describe something worth, worthless is an insult to worms, <laughs> which are also God's creatures. But God expects nothing from them, worms, on the order that he expects from you and me. You need to know 
that when God made human beings, he pronounced that creation very good. He pronounced worms good. He pronounced human beings very good. Never does the Bible say that human beings are now worthless. Never does it say that you are worthless. Who did God make when He made you? A being worth far more to Him and therefore to us all than we could ever calculate. I mean, just look at this passage. Be real with those closest to you, it says. Put off falsehood. Recognize the devil's schemes. Don't defraud your neighbor. Advocate for those around you. This was just a day in the life of a normal human being back in the day when God put humankind on the planet. It's tempting to look at the human race now and conclude that that's absurd because we are far from that now. But listen, if God had made something that couldn't do that, that couldn't hear His moral order and respond favorably to it. If God had made something that couldn't do that, it would be absurd for him to have given us any moral instruction at all. Human beings are responsible for the way they live precisely because they have been created with the ability to live in exactly the way Paul envisions in this passage. Now, that ability has been corrupted and we have turned away from that life and therefore Unless God intervenes, you are doomed. Your life will go on after you die, but it will go on deteriorating in hell for eternity. But Christ can regenerate your life. He's the only one who can. Paul speaks here of just what that regenerated life looks like. You ever think about your origin story? I used to think about that a lot when I was collecting comic books as a kid. Every good superhero has an origin story that is really cool. But so do you and I. We, we kind of think about each other's origin stories, more other people's. We say, how did he get like that? Or how did she end up that way? Genesis 2-7 tells you your origin story. We read that passage, or you heard Aaron read it earlier. And I appreciate so much how Aaron presented that passage with a thought about the animating life of God in us. Genesis 2-7 tells you that God's Spirit breathed life into you. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. God made you. So there should be some evidence of God-designed quality in you. If your being, body, mind, and spirit, think about this. If, if your being could be reverse engineered, what would that cosmic engineer find? That engineer would find deep in the core of the human person something that no other created being possesses, a capacity to hear God's voice and to decide whether to respond to it. That capacity to decide is called a will. It is the quality mark that verifies that you and I are unique among the created things and that we are made in the image of God. No other living being on the earth possesses such a magnificent core as the will 
Once God's Spirit breathed the will into us, we became human beings capable of intelligent assessment of the world around us, and we became morally accountable creatures. That's your origin story. Furthermore, when God created human beings, we lived for a while in a life-giving kind of community, one in which there was close face-to-face life between God and us. God was not invisible, and we did not desire to make ourselves invisible from God. Now, what has to be true of a community like that? The community that once was. What characteristics would have to be present in such a fellowship? Paul lists those characteristics in verses 25 through 30. He says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. That's trust, the opposite of withholding. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's fellowship, the opposite of cultivated anger. Doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. That's creativity, the opposite of stealing. Building others up according to their needs. That's encouragement, the opposite of superiority that it may benefit those who listen. That's love. The opposite of abandonment and apathy. These are the same attributes, wouldn't you know, present in the Trinity. The eternal life together of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These attributes are attributes that have no meaning in a context of isolation. Only when there is shared life do these concepts exist. Trust, fellowship, creativity, love, so forth. God has always existed, so shared life has always existed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the primary reason it's not accurate to say that God created the universe because He was lonely. God's never been lonely. Not because loneliness is weakness, but because God Himself is eternal community. God is Trinity, and therefore God has shared life eternally. And Paul says that any community claiming to be a part of God's family will possess these attributes. Now, Paul takes a break here after he lists these attributes. He takes a break here because he's in the zone as he's writing this letter. And he's feeling these things deeply. Being in the zone is... One of the ways the Holy Spirit works with human beings. In this case, the Holy Spirit was sustaining Paul's flow as he wrote down these soul-shaping, word-shifting thoughts. Anyway, Paul speaks here as if he's completely overcome by the juxtaposition of the grandeur of these attributes on the one hand with the reality of how often people actually live on the other hand. He can't bear to think about how beautiful such a life is, the one he describes, and how ugly it becomes when people do not live that way with one another. Feeling begins to flood his mind, Paul's mind, a sadness which turns perhaps to sobbing even. And as spasms of sorrow roll over him, Paul realizes that what he's feeling is not his feeling alone, but that it is shared by the Holy Spirit within him as well. It's as if he's feeling God's feelings in himself, and it is brutal. 
I don't know how long Paul was caught in these paroxysms of abject grief. Maybe he had to start with a new sheet of papyrus because of the way his tears smeared the ink. Eventually, though, he regains his composure and then he writes these words. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Those words arise from something that has welled up deep within him that the Holy Spirit has been feeling in him. It wasn't just a good idea that Paul jotted down. God's grief is real grief. God sets out to love the people he created. The reason God says so many times, I will be glorified, is in order to say to us, you can trust me. Everything else will wither away. You won't regret this. You won't be disappointed. Every time somebody winds up in hell, every time somebody winds up in hell, God grieves because He loves that somebody who has wound up in hell, and that somebody will never know it. That's a sense of loss that only God can bear. The magnitude of a loss like that would crush a lesser God. This is a God who tracks the life trajectory of sparrows. He misses each one of those birds when they die. You are worth much more than a sparrow. But now, God has begun to restore the human race, to bring life to all who will count on Christ. Look at verses 31 and 32. Get rid Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. The human race has the ability to destroy itself by rejecting the truth and turning on each other. That's what happens when human beings reject the truth. Eventually, we just turn on each other. Through the ages, the means are always the same. Rage-fueled ruination of the bodies, minds, and spirits of one another. The only remedy lies, the only remedy lies in forgiving each other. The only remedy at all. And Paul knows that only the church will teach the world to do this. Think about that. Paul says, you are that fellowship who will teach the world. So the last place the habits of fighting against one another must operate is the church. The fate of the human race hangs in the balance. Therefore, Paul says the church needs to see the real you. The you that Christ is bringing back to life. We tend to recoil at that phrase, the real you, because we go back to that worm idea. That's not who God created. That's not who God speaks to. That's not who God is bringing to life. 
The real you is the you that God is bringing back to life, the you that is able to show the world how to live. The world needs to see the real true selves of the persons who call themselves the church. The world needs to see that this is how they were made to live. So, can the real you actually live like Paul claims you can live in verses 25 through 29? If not, there's no point, no power in this Scripture. Of course you can. Because God has revived your spirit with His Holy Spirit. It won't be like flipping a switch because that's not how the human person ever grows. It will be a process of learning that the real you has indeed been revived by the Holy Spirit and learning how to live in that belief. That process will involve paying careful attention to your inner life. It will involve asking questions just like the people you read about in the Bible ask questions. The psalmists often ask hard inner questions. Why so downcast, O my soul? And this wasn't just some flip question like, cheer up! Buck up! That's not what the psalmist was saying. The psalmist was saying, what is going on in the turmoil and the tempest of my innermost being? Why so downcast, O my soul? Paul himself asked hard inner questions. Who shall rescue me from this body of death? Those aren't easy questions to wrestle with. And the same must be true of you and me. Here are some hard inner questions that come right out of this passage as you learn to live in the way that God has restored the real you to live. Verse 25, truth-telling instead of insulating yourself. The question, how much of myself will I hide from my brother and sister? Think about how you present yourself in person or these days on social media. We were talking in my family recently about the humble brag. You know what I mean? We've always been doing it, but social media has amplified that. You want to appear humble and you couch it in ways, you, you couch your bragging in ways that make you appear humble. Uh, do people really see you or a curated image of you? This is what it means to tell the truth. Verses 26 and 27, fellowship instead of getting your way. The question is, what will it cost to support my brother and sister? Think about your will. That's what is at stake in anger. Is the only way for you to care for your will to wound someone? Verse 28, creativity instead of stealing. The question is, what would a better fellowship look like? Think about what you can bring to the fellowship of Christ. What do others need that only you can provide? Verse 29, encouragement instead of superiority. The question is, what words from my brother, what words would my brother and sister welcome from me? Think about hope. What words might preserve a person's hope? Verse 29, love instead of abandonment. The question is, what is the good my brother and sister need? That's what love is. 
Thomas Aquinas said, to love is to will the good of the other. So the question is, what is the good my brother and sister need? Think about what you would like others to do to you, Jesus said. Do your brother and sister want to be treated in that way? You can live this way. It is within you because the Spirit of God is within you. Access those abilities. You don't have to seek them out. You don't have to find some kind of workaround. You don't have to go to some special conference. You don't have to try really hard and hope you make it. You don't have to listen to those voices which say, why can't you be more like him or like her or the person you used to be? The power is already inside you. God is restoring in you what he knew was true about you. He's restoring you to that created version of you. The real you isn't somebody you have to hide like you always thought you did. That one, that one you've wanted to hide, that person you think you need to hide, that's actually the stranger, the poser, the interloper. It's not the real you. The real you is the one God is restoring. The real you is the one who is confident and loving. Paul isn't giving you a list of qualities to live up to, but a revelation of what the Holy Spirit has brought to life in you. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living, a living being. That's what happened once long ago. That's how God brought human beings into existence. It's happening again now with you, with everyone who has heard Christ and has begun to count on Him. This is the new genesis. This is the restoration of the real you. May we just spend some time, just a few seconds in silence, just complete silence right now, and let these words of Scripture sink in that much more. Just a few seconds of silence. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.